Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Hey everyone and welcome to this week's guest, Scott MacArthur. Scott, how are you? Hello Ian, it's lovely to be here. I'm very well actually. It's uh, half past, it was nine o'clock here and my football team are playing at the moment and I'm not listening to them, I'm talking to you. So I'm on tender hooks. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) Oh, we should have rescheduled. That's not cool. No, 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 no. Um, yes, yeah, so football team, you're in Glasgow. Are, are you uh, Celtic or Rangers? No, I, I actually, I know I sound like I'm in Glasgow, but I, I live in uh, the, the sort of south west of England in the Cotswolds, actually. So my, my local team would be Oxford, I guess. But uh, no, I'm a, I'm a Heart of Midlothian fan. Um, yeah. I'm a Hearts fan. So yeah. uh, uh, oh, got a couple of Aussies playing for us, actually. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Enough. Yeah, yes, doing well. Yeah. Um, well, I apologise for... Uh, <laughs> painting you with the wrong brush there oh that's all right it happens often it happens often uh, so scott you've had a varied past uh music industry speaking yeah. working big business tech yeah what's what's the, the part of what you do that really lights you up the most oh my goodness he didn't tell me he was going to tell me that asked me that question that's a really good question. I, I am, um, since I was a kid, I was always, I was really annoying as a kid. I wasn't that bright, but I was I was really annoying that I was always asking, how do things work? And I think that curiosity is the thing that, that took me into my scientific career, it took me into my business career, it took me into everything I've done really. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, just really, really curious. Um, and I, because of that, I've done a lot of different things, you know, I, I, because I'm always, there's nothing I'm not interested in, you know, um, whether it's, you know, it can be gardening, electronics, you know, sound design, you know, I'm interested in everything. And that obviously is a problem sometimes because a focus is then a challenge, but I am really interested. I'm turned on by people who are good at what they do across the disciplines. I think that's the best way to do that. So I like death metal and I like pop, right? <laughs> I like the whole thing, you know, because... People who are good at it are good at it, uh, and I really like that. Oh, that's cool. Love <laughs> it. Uh, I've got a fairly uh, widespread music taste too, so yeah. I don't do too much death metal, but... Uh, but I, take oh, I don't like play. death metal really, but the good ones are good. The good ones are good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So you've had a, a really varied career, and you've done you've worn a lot of hats. Yeah. What is it you're doing now, and... And how is that going to be helpful to people at the moment? 
Well, uh, I think my, my two years ago, I was a professional speaker on the, the circuit, on the global circuit, doing keynotes all over the place. Uh, in February 2019, I'd just done a keynote for, for Microsoft at Microsoft. Uh, and then COVID came along and the whole industry collapsed. So it was a case of like everybody else, it's not, I wasn't different to anybody else, but it was an events industry that I worked in. So of course the events industry has still not recovered. And in fact, it's gone backwards, to be honest, the, the, the yeah, market wow. is, is really bad. Um, so I've had to think about it and it's actually a really good question. And, and I think the thing that I've done before, which has changed, you know, I went from a scientific career into HR into technology into consulting into the music industry into you know I've done a few of those jumps. Yeah. I sat down and I spoke to my partner and said to her, I said, look, what what am I going to do here? And she said, well, one thing you're not going to do is sit up there and feel sorry for yourself in your little studio. You need to actually get out there. So I started broadcasting from day one. Actually, I think I spent two weeks feeling sorry for myself, Ian, uh, and then I started broadcasting. And I've done four hundred hours of broad live broadcasting now in the last eighteen months, and. Um, I think that has really helped a lot of people see that anybody can do it. You know, I'm getting an awful lot of people coming to me now and saying, look, I'm really nervous about this. How do I do it? And I think it's the, it's learning how to, you're very good at it. I've, I've listened to your podcast, um, you know, speak with authority, not necessarily with a script. Um, you get better at it and you can help people get better at that. Um, yeah. I think the, the way, I mean, I always spoke about the future of work. I did that long before COVID. Um, so that means I had a sort of arsenal of things that, that I was was thinking were important and they are still important. You know, the, the time frames have maybe changed a little bit, but nothing really changes. You know, the truth is nothing really changes, not quickly anyway. So the things that I spoke about before are still relevant about, you know, what's coming over the horizon. It just might be getting here quicker. Um, so that is probably where I come at it from, because I, I think what it is, is I, I can stand as a scientist I can stand as an HR professional. I can stand as a, you know, a professional speaker or a consultant, and I can see it from different perspectives. It's that sort of cognitive diversity type idea, yeah. and I think that's what I think. If you ask my clients, they would probably say that Scott. He talks about poetry. He talks about rock music. He talks about measurement. He talks about performance management. He talk, you know, and it, and it, and it all comes together at the end, and I go, <gasps> and I think that is what I give people. It's that breadth because I'm obsessed with poetry. I'm obsessed with music. Um, and I bring them into everything I do, everything I do. Mm, I love that. I can relate to, a lot to what you said. So I, really? I was uh, wor working, I'd, I'd just done some work in the professional sports space where I was like, you know, this is kind of the promised land where I wanted to work and then pandemic Crash. hits and, and, and I had the same thing, about a week and a half to two weeks sulking and then it's like, yeah. what am I going to do? And and <laughs> I saw people doing this and I'm like, I, I don't like I've been talking about a podcast for four years. I actually have no excuse now. I just get it set up and away you go. So Honestly, I was almost the same, almost exactly the same. I'd spoken about it for ages. But the, thing, the other thing that I think that differentiated perhaps you and I is an awful lot of the people in the speaking market certainly are still setting their studios up. They haven't started broadcasting two years later. They're talking about doing it. And if you look back to my early videos, my God, I was terrible. But, I got going and I think, you know, that is a lesson. Just get on with it. Don't don't be paralyzed by getting it right or, you know, whatever. It's not it's not about that. It's getting on with it. Um yeah. particularly in this game, if you're doing this, you're in the top one percent of people in the world that are doing communication online. Just a fact. 
Yeah, it's just good. Like that. I like that. You know? I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The the quote that comes to mind: um, "Action breeds confidence. Inaction breeds fear and doubt." So just yeah, get yeah. on with it. Yeah, yeah you've got to get started absolutely. at some point. Um, okay, so you mentioned there around uh, analysis, and you said that's something that that really, even coming from a science background, it's like it could be a little bit counterintuitive. But what you've learned is how much <laughs> the world and specifically the people you help are just mm. getting too over paralyzed by analysis, yes. by measurement instead of actually getting to the essence of, of what it is they're wanting to achieve. So can you tell us a little bit about how you're seeing that playing out and then we yeah. can get into and then more of the detail about actually how you help people see it from another, another angle? It, it really was a bit of a journey, to be honest. I'll try not to go on too much. I'm a speaker after all. I can't help speaking. You know, give me a microphone and a camera and I'll speak all night. But what... After like during my scientific career, my job, and I'll probably talk about it later, but I was I was fundamentally in measurement. I was a medical statistician, effectively. That wasn't what I was called, but that's what I was doing. I was looking down microscopes and I was measuring things. That's what I did. Um, and when I came out of the the, the scientific community because I couldn't cope with living in a squat anymore, I'll maybe tell you more about that as well later. But um, I got picked up on one of the, the graduate programs because I was numerate, and I ended up working in in human resources. And I'd ended up, I had a 15-year HR career, and I was HR director uh, for the last sort of seven or eight years of that, that career. And I always, at that point, and I had a reputation for it, I, I was the guy who was banging the drum for evidence-based HR. I was, I was wanting to professionalise HR. I wondered where all the people experts were. There was all these fads and things that just didn't work. There had no scientific relevance to them. They didn't work. They were, they were you know, like learning styles, all that sort of stuff. Nonsense. And um, I was determined to change it. And I, and I, in all the companies, I was HR director and I was looking for psychologists, psychiatrists, sociologists, you know, people that were actually qualified in people skill, had people skills, not had just done a course and suddenly were an expert. Um, and yeah. I went for that really hard and I got a really hard reputation for that. Uh, and I didn't take any nonsense because I just got so sick of the fads and the nonsense that was in the profession. Then I came out. Uh, as HR director and I went into consulting and, and I, I became a part of a huge uh, practice at, at KPMG um, and we did business transformation all over the world including in, in Australia actually uh, I did some work for Swiss Re over in Sydney yeah. and um, a lot of that was about measurement and we would put in these great big engines you know uh, to you know scorecards and you know all this data 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 and i was quite comfortable with that you know it was it was reasonably straightforward but these programs are still notoriously difficult and i think it was when i left big consulting and went into running my own company i started to see things a little bit differently because you know, if I go into your company and no matter what I do, if it causes a return on investment or, or a return on humanity, that's it. That's all it needs to do. You don't need to measure it. Yeah? yeah. Yeah. And I think that started me on a journey of not absolutely not going away from evidence-based leadership, management, HR, etc., but certainly being a little bit more willing to take into account the sort of what a very famous scientist once said, a different magisteria, you know, a different way of framing the world. It might not be real, but it is true to that person. And I think that became quite important to my work after I came out of consulting. And ironically, they now bring me back in again to do that sort of thing for them. So it seems to resonate with a lot of them as well. So 
But that took me a good 20 years. You know, it wasn't suddenly a, a, I didn't have a eureka moment. It was a, it was a development of an understanding of uh, probably annoying quite a lot of people, probably inspiring, I hope, quite a lot of people. But then I thought, hmm, maybe I need to change the way I think about this and change the way I encourage people to, to look at their career and look at the way they run their organisations and how they run their lives. Oh, yeah, run your lives. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm tingling through that. Yeah. The, uh, the thought that comes to mind is uh, the people in my life who are teachers and yeah. and the over-analyzing oh, and measuring absolutely. and like and the hoops they've got to jump through. So many just leaving the profession because they're it's like, terrible. I don't want to do the paperwork. This is not what I've yeah. signed up for. And, yeah. and, and to hear what you're talking about, the, 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 uh, the term you use there, return in humanity, like, oh, oh wow, yeah. like the power yeah. of that statement. Well, that's yeah. where we should be heading, right? Absolutely. And it doesn't matter what, I mean, I mean, I've got, I mean, I could go on about it all night, but you know, but it doesn't really matter what you do. If you do something and there's a return on humanity for what you're doing. And I was talking about this long before COVID, long before any of this nonsense that's going on in the world just now. Yeah. I believe that that is, is something worth, worth doing. You know, I mean, I remember if I can tell a very quick story, I used to work for British Gas, which is one of the big um, utilities companies here. Yeah. And I, my job title was quite funny. My job title was personnel officer, brackets, welfare and relocation, right? Yeah. And we had 78,000 employees just in my region, right, in the northwest of England, a massive organization. And my job was to look after, I had two things. One, the relocation, I'll just, I'll not talk about that. But the, the welfare thing, we had football teams, rugby teams, cricket teams, snooker teams. Uh, we had uh, things like ping pong leagues. We had sewing leagues, we had storytelling leagues, we had book clubs, we had, you get where I'm going, you know, health <laughs> and safety. It was enormous. We had, a, we had a lottery that we made somebody a millionaire every month. We had, you know, it, it was absolutely incredible. And I thought, and I was totally wrong, I thought I was sidelined in that job. I thought what I was doing was a load of nonsense. And I discovered when British Gasp got broken up, chronically badly it was a terrible decision by a terrible government um but when it got broken up my job was to close down a lot of the social clubs i think there was 300 social clubs i closed down i had no concept what they meant to people and what they meant to their lives no concept and i'm nearly crying because it, it really oh. i remember going to i remember going to cardiff right you know the uh, capital of uh, Wales and we had a British Gas social club there and I went into this club and they were all waiting for me because I was the boss and they were all waiting for me to tell them when we were closing it and how because they all knew they're all getting closed and this wee man lovely wee Welsh man took me into this this club and he did it he did it deliberately but he walked me through this corridor and it had people that had been working for British Gas since the 1890s grandfather father son yeah yeah and i broke down I, I i had to get out of the room i had to leave the room because it and and i think now looking back on that it's so funny because it's all coming back everybody's yeah. talking about welfare and how we should be looking after our people we were doing that guys in the 70s and in the 80s yeah full circle you know but i didn't get it back then so i'm not being a smarty pants here i'm not i, I didn't get it i didn't i didn't realize until with a bit of hindsight, how important that was, Ian. I hope that makes sense, but yeah, <sighs> did I learn a lesson? And none of that was measured. 
but the return on humanity for that massive oh you know? man i'm getting tingled <laughs> all through again so wow so let me give you some data and i know i kind of help myself right data in 1989 when i was there british gas was the best company to work for in europe it was the hair that it was the safest gas supplier in the world it spent more money than any other gas organization in the world on research and development you know more more money than anyone else in research and development and it had the biggest welfare budget in europe for a for a public company right so despite all this folks saying oh it's terrible and you should stop doing all these meaningless and unmeasurables <laughs> yeah, yeah the outcomes were there but i was too young and daft and too driven you know, I was yeah. too driven towards being an HR director at that point. I was determined to have this career, and blah, blah, blah. and I didn't, I didn't see it. I see it now, man. <laughs> I see it now. Yeah, clearly, and yeah. and it's that sense of community. Yeah. And if you think about the last two years, how much that's been ripped away from people, and how much they've felt it. Yeah. Like what you were describing there, right? Like we've been doing this for for however many decades, and yeah. now you're taking it away. Like you are. Yeah. Yeah, and so. Yes, we have come full circle, and and not wow. quickly enough. Like, like that that that's something I'm putting up on the wall for sure. Return in humanity, <laughs> right? That that's such a powerful statement. So, so what's typically the sort of people that you work with, and how do you help them yeah. find that return in humanity, and and to allow themselves to detach from that that uh, analysis uh, paralysis okay. by analysis? I think the, that that's a really lovely question, and I, I, I thank thanks for asking it. Um, two years ago, it was really clear. I would go into the business. I would probably do a keynote at their annual conference. I would then have a team of people who would go in and we'd go in and we'd, we'd offer them, you know, workshops, a bit of mentoring and coaching, working with the exec teams, working with the quite often this other PMO, you know, the program management office, and maybe the HR people, but not always. Um, and we would start to build an understanding of why the complexity levels in the business don't have to be as complex as they are, right? Now, of course, that has now changed because I'm not doing, I mean, I'm doing, well, I used to do three keynotes a week. I've, I've done, I've now got three in six months, right? So, I mean, it, it is, the, the way that the market has changed is remarkable. What am I doing? How am I doing it now? At the moment, I'm working it out. I'm, I'm going through another process. If I'm absolutely honest, I'm not going to be issue. You know, I'm going through another process. And the way I'm doing it is now I'm sitting on board. So I'm sitting on the board of a, a recruitment organization. I'm sitting on, brilliant, I'm, on, I'm the ambassador for one of the biggest zoos in the United Kingdom. And I don't even like zoos, but, <laughs> you know, uh, but I can make a difference for them. Um, yeah. So it, it, I've had to change my operating model. I, I fully intend to go back to where I was before, but you've got to be a realist in this world. And I'm not going to tell you lies, everything's rosy. It's not, it's quite challenging at the moment, but... It is another one of these threshold moments. And that came from a, a wonderful Irish poet called John O'Donoghue. And he used to talk about, you know, you know, spot the, the threshold moments uh, in your life. And I'm living one like an awful lot of people are at the moment. You know, I'm right in the middle of it. I'm right in the middle of it. Maybe a year ago, two years ago, I would have come to those moments. And, yeah, like I described earlier, like I would have sulked for a week and a half. Yeah, Whereas yeah. Now, now it's a realization that get through the tough moment, it yeah. always ends up better than it was before. Yes. If you can just yes. keep moving forward. Absolutely. So, so how have you managed to keep yourself moving forward given, like you said, you had all these speaking gigs lined up. 
yeah. and then they get ripped away. Like yeah. you did say your wife uh, gave you some pretty uh, powerful advice too, but what other sort of things? <laughs> well, I think I, I gave, as I say in Scotland, I gave myself a good talking to. You know, I I, I, I did. I went off the rails for two weeks. I, I think I, drank, I, I think uh, Guinness's profits went up significantly <laughs> uh, uh, in that two weeks before they closed the pubs after they, they announced lockdown. And... Um, in the UK anyway. And um, so I, I thought, well, I need to do something with my time. So I started doing this. I also started working again in the music industry stuff because I've got a, a very niche thing that I do there, but very successful. I've got uh, 11,000 people in a Facebook group that are 90% of them are active. So it's absolutely chaos. It's brilliant. Wow. Um, but um, it's kind of, it was kind of that. I just had to keep going. I mean, I, I also... And again, it hit my partner always hit. I mean, I think everybody should rely on their partner for some of these things, and I really do with mine. She kept asking me, what are you good at? And I'm like, well, I can do HR. I can do a bit of science, but I'm a bit out of date now. I can do... She said, no, that's all really boring. What are you good at? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is me. I'm getting coached here. I'm not getting... I'm not." Getting, and she's doing it for nothing, I guess. Anyway, yeah. and it was basically storytelling. Oh, not, not for nothing. <laughs> not for nothing. No, 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 you're right. <laughs> and it was basically storytelling. So I, I, and I'd, I'd never really thought about it. If I'm absolutely honest, I'd never thought about it. Um, I'd told stories on stage for 10 years, um, but I'd never really thought about getting into it. So I started to do a live broadcast about storytelling called Artifact, Artifact Live. And I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, absolutely clueless and you can tell when you look at the, the early episodes but very quickly I was getting half decent guests and I was getting people curious and I was getting better with the technology and I thought eh, there might be something in this um, so that was the thing that that and the music were the things that got me through it I think I just I went to my passions to be honest um, but one of them I didn't know was a passion storytelling is a passion of mine I didn't know that two years ago didn't know it wow what didn't a gift it. Yeah, there's always, yeah, always a gift. Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, to me, your storytelling ability comes through and shines through, and it did from the moment I started speaking to you. So you. it would be a great time for us to dig a bit deeper on, on your upbringing and growing up in the in the tough times in, in yeah. some pretty challenging parts of Glasgow. I yeah. imagine there was a lot of storytelling then, <laughs> but also – like you would have a lot of stories from those days as well that, that really helped yes. form and define you as a person now. I think the one, and I'll go full on Glasgow for a minute and, and your Scottish viewers uh, will get this. You probably won't, but it, it used what? to be when you bumped into somebody anywhere where I lived, they'd go, how you doing big man? What's your story? Right. That's how are you? What are you all about? What's your, what's your story? Yeah. And, I never, re I never heard that when I was a kid. You know, I never, I never heard that. It was, it was, I was too busy, you know, playing football or whatever, uh, looking for a, a pint of Guinness. Some <laughs> things don't change. And um, I think what I now see when I look back on that time, I, I, I was like a train on a track. We all were. We were expected to, you know, go to school, not do particularly well because the schools were rubbish anyway, uh, not go to university, but then go and work in the steel mills or in the uh, what they called Gart Kosh, which is, was a huge steel mill uh, near where, where I grew up. And that was indeed, you know, where I was heading. I mean, my dad 
uh, was a quantity, so is still, well, he's retired now, but he was a quantity surveyor. His dad had been a fisherman. My mum had been a domestic in, in a hospital and her father, wonderful man, had been in the Navy. So there was fishing in the Navy. So there was a lot of water in the background, but I was kind of moving more towards heavy industry. And there's nothing wrong with heavy industry, but that, that was where I was moving. But I didn't want to do it. And I remember um, I went to see this woman, Mrs. Elliot was her name, and she was the careers advisor. And she said to me, she said, well, your grades aren't very good. Um, but that doesn't really matter because you'll get an apprenticeship at the Craig, that was Raven's Craig, the, the, the steel mill. And I came out thinking, oh, God, you know, and I was I was panicking because I, I didn't want to do it. I'd been to the Raven's Craig and seen, it's like it's like Mordor from the Lord of the Rings, Raven's Craig. It was all these big metal on fire and huge, you know, thunderous crunches and making wires and things. I didn't want to work in Mordor. <laughs> uh, so, so I went I went to see my, my wonderful grandfather who was in the Navy for, for 30 years. And uh, he said, and he swore, but he said, you know, no, nah, don't listen to her. You know, do what you want to do. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, but I was kind of keen on uh, Jacques Cousteau and David Bellamy and, you know, um, David, David Attenborough. Uh, so I thought, I'm going to be one of them. I'm going to be a scientist. Uh, and by God, I did. <laughs> I went and did it, and uh, and that I'm I'm still dead proud of it. It was it was a big change, and there's very few folk that I went to school with went to university. There's a lot of them have gone back, thank goodness, and done it in older life, but very few did. So I was that's one of my biggest achievements, you know, just getting out of it. Uh, I mean, Glasgow and Edinburgh are forty miles apart, and I lived in the middle of them, and I had never been to Edinburgh by the age of 18. Wow. Because everybody got drawn towards the, the city lights, not the intelligent smarty pants in Edinburgh, but the city lights and the and the drink and the, the violence and the gangs and all the rest of it in Glasgow. Weird, doesn't it? But that's true. So the first time I went to Edinburgh, I was the, the day before I went to university. I'd never been to Edinburgh. Never been. Yeah. Never been. I, I, I can't say I'm by any means an expert. My father-in-law's uh, Glaswegian, so... Ah. Now, I do relate to some of these, and I'll have to get him to watch these because I'm sure he'll enjoy it. Uh, you said your grandfather, ah. like, good advice, but he, but he was it was more than just that, right? He was a, ah. a wealth of knowledge for you. So, so how important I mean, was that for you in the younger years when it, when it was a pretty tough old world? Well, I think the thing, and again, this is with hindsight, so I'm not trying to be a smart part smarter here, you know. Yeah. With hindsight, it was because I think he was in the Navy, and he had got out of – that part, and he loved Glasgow, and he was an absolute Glaswegian through. You cut him through, and he was Glasgow. Um, but he went all around the world, and you know, he obviously fought in the Second World War and all the rest of it. But I think it was that the travel part that that I, I got quite excited about. And then when you put that along with Jacques Cousteau, David Bellamy, and David Attenborough, it's quite a a heady mix, you know. And I think it's that that drew me towards something else and got me out of it. Um, and I don't regret that for a minute. And he, I mean, I remember I did a, I did a talk, um, a TEDx talk. I've done a couple of these. I did one, the second one I did was called uh, uh, My Grandfather's Foot. And I, and I actually stood on this, the red dot and I said to them, I said, I'd like to tell you a story about my grandfather's foot. And I paused and they're all going, what? <laughs> <laughs> 
And what it was, was when I went to university, and it's down there, he wrote to me every week for 20 years, and I've got a foot of letters from my grandfather. That's my yeah. grandfather's foot. Yeah, wow. You know, and he was able, he had angina, so he wasn't able to do the climbing and mount, mountaineering he used to do, but he, he spent 20 years writing about life, what he was watching on television, the people, the football, uh, and it, it's wonderful to go back and look at that um, because he didn't have the ability to travel, the money to travel or anything like that, but he travelled in here. Wow. And so now you've got a, a whole pile of stories from him. Yeah. Uh, I can see where the inspiration for storytelling yeah. has come from. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I spotted that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to get me emotional here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to dig deeper there if that's okay. Yeah, that's um, all right. So, so when we have these important people in our life, and then and then they kind of taken away. Like, yeah. yes, they would have had an impact, but but was there a moment of like, well, okay, now he's gone. Like, there's almost like a, a legacy you want to leave around this, or have you even thought about it that deeply? Um. Yes, but but again, I hadn't done before. Before I don't think I had done before lockdown really, because I, I, this is again part of the work that I'm doing as a you know in in this sort of post almost post COVID world. Because I I get everybody to think about, and I believe that stories can change the world. I really believe it. I really yeah. really believe it. Um, and everybody can tell a story and everybody's got a story that I want to hear and everybody's got a story that everybody else wants to hear, but very few folk actually do it, particularly in the workplace. So I've started, and one of the phrases I got from a, a former poet laureate, um, he said, stories can act as an empathy engine. <laughs> I wish I had said that. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Stories act as an empathy engine. And, and I thought, the hell we need more empathy you know and and so i've been teaching people how to be archaeologists of their own life um how to go out and look for stories and how to to you know i mean i, I teach them how to do it but it's, it's it's to be honest it's really basic it's just a basically a list but you know i had maybe 10 stories before you know two years ago i had maybe 10 stories i told all the time i've got 350 stories in my little uh, spreadsheet now that I can pick and mix from and I can tell and I, and because they're my stories, no one else can tell them like I can tell them, yeah. you know, I don't need to behave like a Simon Sinek or a, you know, another one of these gurus who just take everybody else's stories and pretend it's theirs. I don't need to do that. I, I've got my stories yes. you know, and, and I tell those stories and I maybe take bits and change it a wee bit and, you know, you know, move the time frames and stuff. Absolutely. But, um, but it's my stories. Um, and that means that when I talk to people, and I tell them a story, or I get them, even more important, to tell me a story. How you doing, big man? What's your story? <laughs> um, they open up. You know, they, 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 I, remember, I, I talked to a chap, a wonderful chap who works in America now called Nick Askew. And he's a filmmaker. And what Nick does is he sets up a camera, a black background and a white light hitting the person. And they sit next to each other. He said two meters apart. And he switches the camera on. And he just waits for them to speak. Doesn't give them a brief. That's brilliant. You know, so he, everything he does, he, this is his words, comes from nothing. And I think that that, and I only, I only met Nick about a month ago, but, um, and he's worked like 
Barack Obama's people and, you know, very senior people in, in the States. He's done extremely well. But I think I was doing something similar. But what I was doing with people was like, grab an artifact, grab something important to you and tell the story about that artifact. So I had them, this is why I've, I mean, I know this is a podcast, but behind me I've got all sorts of artifacts, bits and pieces. There's a skull and there's an elephant and there's a clock, couple of clocks and there's a Indiana Jones type thing and that's got, that's got a compass in it, and, you know, and and I can tell stories about all these things, but everybody's got artifacts, everybody. And if I zoom out a wee bit, and again, this is not good for a podcast, but just so you can see it. Yeah. That's, that's zooming in, isn't it, Scott? See, they're up there. There's a whole load of more artifacts and I use them depending on what I'm talking about. And that list is just getting longer and longer and longer because I'm stu- I'm a student of my own life, you know, and, I, and I'm writing it down and then I share it with people and they go, oh, Christ, that happened to me as well. Yeah. And you've got them just like that, Ian. Just like that. Just like that. To me, you, you've just touched so heavily on the essence of purpose. It's our own story. Yeah. And how often do we underestimate how powerful our story is because exactly like you described then, mm. someone else can relate to some part of that story and they will feel better about their life, where they're at, and their story when they realise, oh wow, like I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not alone in this. Yeah, exactly that, exactly that, and it it, it just goes on because I mean, I, even in the like, I, I I'm very lucky to have a, a bit of a thing in the music industry, and I interview pop stars and rock stars, and they're the same, you know. So <laughs> you very quickly realise that every, there's another saying from Scotland that says we're all, we're all Jack Jock Tamson's bairns, right? We're all related. We're all connected. Ah, oh, God, it's so true. Yeah, it's so true, and it's why it's so tragic what's happening in in Europe at the moment. Because um, we're all the bloody same. We shouldn't be fighting with each other. We should be working together to make the world a better place, you know, uh, rather than bombing each other. But but for me, that's that's again the essence of it. It, it it's the understanding that we are all the same. You know, I've got seventy five percent the same DNA as a piece of cauliflower. For God's sake, you know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know it, it, it is. It's incredible when you think about it like that. It is incredibly. It's my, my hero's Carl Sagan. I don't know if you ever heard of Carl Sagan, but he's a, yeah. an American, uh, wonderful American scientist. And um, he he was he's the man. I think in 1985, when I was a student, I missed him by 30 miles. I didn't know who he was, but he was 30 miles away from me in 1985. God, I wish I'd seen him and met him. But he's helped me as well through the years because his work's just astonishing. I mean, it's just. And if your viewers haven't uh, read, you know, uh, you know, Carl Sagan, watch Cosmos. It's revelatory to this day. I'm sure even if they're not familiar with the name, they would have come across quotes from him before oh, because yeah. uh, they're, they're littered through the uh, interweb. Yeah. Uh, some some great lines there. Archaeologist of your own life, um, yeah. student of your own life, like – everyone absolutely has a story and it's so important for all of us just to remember that it's so important for us to be able to tell our story that the healing and the and the joy it brings for us to be able to just talk about ourselves like it's there's so much power there oh yeah i mean i I remember um there was a a british mp doesn't matter who he was tony ben was his name but it was this british mp who when i was 16 i watched him on the bbc i think it was on uh, question time or something on the BBC uh, about you know QI you have in America that, in, in Australia that 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 same sort of thing if you have not seen Question Time very similar to uh, QI and um, 
he said, I record a diary every day and I've done it all my life. You know, and th- at this point he'd been doing it for 50 years and it's an audio diary he did, right? So I've been doing an audio diary since I was 18. I've got it here. I can show you. I, I've actually, I, um, this, I, start, I started doing it on one of these old dictaphones, <laughs> yeah. little tapes. Then I moved up to um, an MP3 recorder, one of these things. <laughs> and I've got I've got hundreds of these little tapes from all through my life. So when's this one from? Twenty eighth of December, uh, two thousand and three. <laughs> so, so that again, and I never thought I'd ever listen to it, but I am now listening to bits of it. And and I mean, I'm not a huge Tony Robbins fan, but one thing he did say that I thought was interesting, he said, um, "If a life's worth living, it's worth recording." And I think he was right. And I've yeah, done that. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I'm drifting more into to voice for everything. The people yeah. list, listening to this who who know if I message them more often than not, it's a voice memo. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a greater connection. Yeah, there's so much power in it. Definitely a fan. I, I still keep a, a written journal as well because yeah, well done. I, there's well something done. about the uh, written word for me. Like I'm very kinesthetic, so that helps. But yeah, yeah there absolutely. I, you, you talked about you know having someone like Carl Sagan who had an impact and you never met him like there he learning. is there he is Matt there he is <laughs> the bob head yeah love it one of my um, one of my uh, listeners on my music show made that for me that's a handmade Carl Sagan he actually made it for me brilliant uh, fantastic yeah so so Jim Rohn was one of those people for me and yeah. and he talked about like keeping a personal inventory yeah. Because then when you look back, you can see how far you've come. I mean, how often do we get through a day, a week, a year and go, what did I achieve? Well, when you've got a journal and you look back and you and you go, oh, wow, actually, today <laughs> was much better than I thought. This week yeah. was way better than I thought. And look yeah. at all the amazing things I did in a year. Yes. It's, yes. it's I guess, if you look at it, that's that's the storytelling of your own life. Exactly. What a, what a, what a gift for yourself, but... Hopefully, at some point, someone will be um, listening back through your files. I hope you're going to digitise them all, are you? Uh, I have done already, actually. I do. Yeah, it digi- yeah. I, I use an app called Dragon now that, that I record everything on Dragon, and that's all up in the cloud, so it's nice and safe. Yeah. Nice. Um, so yeah, hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, done. hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I know a lot of uh, storytelling for me is uh, intuitively guided. Even these conversations, I just wait. Similar to what you described, where the light comes on and, and then just wait. Yeah. How, how does the intuitive side come into your storytelling? I'm sure there are different times where you've got a plan and then the story just kind of just goes where it goes. And and how do you actually tap into that to okay. improve improve your um, ability to, to tell a story? I think that's a brilliant question. Um, and we didn't set that up. Um, the way I write, uh, and it's quite interesting, it really is interesting you've asked that question because in, in like I, I try to write about, 2,000 words a week. Uh, so it's not a lot, but I try to do 2,000 words. I do 1,000 words for my music thing and I do 1,000 words for my business thing. And the music thing is probably the most interesting at the moment because I, I sit there and I go, right, what would, they, what would these people be interested in hearing about? What story would they want to hear about? So I go back and I think, right, what did I do when I was 19? You know, where did I go? What did I drink? What was happening in the media? And of course, I'm on, I'm on the interwebs looking for what was happening because I can't remember, you know, but then but then I'll watch, you know, maybe see, you know, Princess Di passed away or, you know, um, Scotland won the World Cup or, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> and, um, 
<laughs> You've got to live in your own mind when you're a Scotsman. And, um, but what I find with that is that then it's what I call generative. It, it, it sort of creates another memory, then another memory. And it's almost like an organic thing. But what I always try to do, and if you look at any of my stories on, on the internet, um, you'll see I have a circular shape to nearly all my stories because I'll start with, you know, a, a, an important piece of the story that's completely out of context, but it's a statement and folk go, what? What, what, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, like I did, I wrote one today. Um, I was writing about when it went from the laboratories to HR. So I said, I went from human remains to human resources, right? And that's the first thing they'll see in the article. So it's a bit like, I want to tell you a story about my grandfather's foot. It's just, it, it makes them go, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but Curiosity. they're curious. It gets yes. them curious, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I go through the story organically. I have no idea where it's going to go, but I do know it's going to come back to where it started. That's how I do it. Um, and it works. Brilliant. Yeah. And so it's funny you say, yeah, we didn't tee these up. Um, I've had people say to me, oh, you, you clearly do a lot of preparation for these chats. And I'm like, would you believe we jump on about five, 10 minutes before we have a real quick chat and then we just go? Because yeah. to me, that's where that's where the real magic comes out of storytelling, right? Yeah. Is we allow that creative, intuitive, imaginative, curious side of us to really thrive. Yes. And yeah. that's where that's where we really connect with people because that's what we do where we're having a chat in the pub or we're, yeah. exactly. we're chatting with someone at a bus stop or whatever it is. Like yes. there's some of the great memories, right? Not necessarily... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not necessarily what we were doing, but just because we remember the storytelling and, and we go back and tell those same stories again and again. Exactly. I mean, it's like you can always tell, I mean, you know, back in the speaking business, there are there are some speakers who are not very good speakers. Um, and what they do is they have a script and they learn the script. And of course, you can tell it's a script because they're not Robert De Niro or Mel Streep. You know, they, they, they are not great actors. So that you can tell, you know, I went to the office on a Thursday morning and, uh, and you know, they're all over the place. Um, whereas the great speakers and what I call it, I call it a golden thread. It's just the same as the, the circular storytelling. There's the thread of the story and I know that thread and I'll practice it to the point I can ad lib, right? So yeah. if I do that, that means that I can bring people back at, at any point and the story is actually about the golden thread, but you yes. just you asked me a question and it took me off and I'm going to tell you a story about the Beatles and then I'll come back and I'll tell you a story about Ammonites or I'll, you know and I'll go all over the place but I'll bring you back to that golden thread and people know you're I think the word that you missed out I, I know I know you meant it but authentic people can tell when yeah. you're being authentic and when you're actually just rehearsing the same old BS you've done a million times they can tell they can tell yeah and. Oh, well, I'm drawn to so so in '98 I was in Liverpool and we're staying at a hostel and yeah. the and the old guy who ran the hostel, like we're just sitting there listening to him still tell stories of the '60s in Liverpool, the yeah. Beatles, like all, and it's like you're hanging off every word, right? Because he oh, yeah. he was there, he lived it, and of yeah. course we talked football and all sorts of different things. So how do we bring more of that back to our lives when that's something that, unfortunately, in in so many areas is sadly lacking. Yes. Tell you what, there's, 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 a, there's a good reason for it that goes beyond the one I think you and I are talking about. Storytelling, telling your own stories is actually a differentiator. So 
I remember when I worked um, as an HR director, one of, the, one of the things I used to do every year, and I loved it, I have to say, but I used to do the graduate recruitment round every year. They call it the milk round in the UK, where we get all the university students to come and meet us to go on to our, our, our programmes. So every single one of them would come up. They'd all been coached by the career coach. They come in and go, hi, uh, my, my name's John, and I've got a PhD in whatever, and, you know, and I'll say something like, so how do we know if you're going to be able to work in a team? Well, I joined the University Debating Society, and they, they all say the same thing, right? Yeah. So you effectively just do, Ugh, and you just choose 100 of them and recruit them, because you can't tell them apart, right? Yeah. That's become even more so, because back in the 90s, um, certainly in the United Kingdom, less than 50% of people went to university. In fact, it was less than 20% went to university. Now it's above 80%. So all the kids have got degrees, a large number of them have got MSCs, um, but, and they're all trained how to do interviews, they're all trained how to, you know, do all this stuff. So they're really well, but they're all the same. They're like good little citizens, you know, they're good little citizens. But if one of them comes in and goes, let me tell you a story about my grandfather. They've got it. Yeah. They've got the job. They've <laughs> got the this, job. I so, say this to, to clients regularly, it's like, don't go in trying to tell them what you think they want to hear. Yeah. Go in and just tell them what you bring to the table that's different yeah. to everyone else. And Absolutely. That's what's going to, if yeah. that's, if that's not enough to get you the job, then that's not the job you want. Exactly. I mean, I did this and I did, and I did this in the real world as well. I mean, I used to look after the, uh, the pitching team uh, for one of the big consultancy firms. So we were, we were pitching between like 50 million and a billion dollar uh, deals. That was, that was what we were in that world. Yeah, wow. And I got the responsibility for working with the guys that were pitching for the work. So these were all the technical guys, the Oracle and SAP. It doesn't matter what they were doing. But I got the job of helping them sell stuff. And I'll give you just one example. One of them was the was the Royal Mail, which is the postal service in the United Kingdom. And it was about £350 million. Pounds, what was that? $500 million uh, job. And so it was big. And we really wanted it. We knew we could do it but we were the same as all the other companies because they had the same technology and basically the same people because they're all prostitutes in that world. They all go around all the different companies, you know? So they asked me in, me and my team in, and we sat down and all I did was I said, right, what does the Royal Mail do? That's all I said. What does the Royal Mail do? And they're all looking at me and they all knew me and they knew that I would, have a, I would go for them if they were cheeky. I, you know, that I was senior enough that I could go for them. And they're all going, oh, God, what's he saying? You can see them all going, oh, God, you know. And I said, it's not a trick question. And they went, well, they deliver the mail. Right. Where does the mail come from? Well, it comes from family and friends and companies and stuff. Right. What's it like when you receive a letter? Oh, it's great. All right, okay. Tell you what we're going to do. And this is what we did. We, re we recruited two professional scribes and we hand wrote our proposal for a £350 million uh, IT transformation programme. And then we got a craft company to make a beautiful big envelope. And we put the thing into the envelope and we delivered it with a guy dressed as a postman. Brilliant. We won the work. So good. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it was because it, they were all so obsessed with What's the return on investment? What's the what are our differentiators? And the fact is, there wasn't any differentiators because it's all the same people selling the same technology. And if it's only about price, you've got to differentiate as something. And they'll say, "Oh, it's our A team." Nonsense. They all talk nonsense with that stuff. But 
But the reality was we differentiated ourselves just because we thought about what did the client actually do to deliver letters? Brilliant. <laughs> totally true, I swear to you. Totally true. <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned the phrase there, the golden thread that runs through your stories. So mm. what I know is that we, we all have a golden thread that runs through our life. And when nice. people are searching for answers about what they should do and where they're heading and and it really is tuning into that golden thread. Yeah. So if you look back at your life and that golden thread, and, I'm, and from the conversations we've had, you've, you would have a fair idea around this already. Yeah. What, what is what is kind of the essence of that? What What is it about you, Scott, that, that comes to the table, whether you're speaking, whether you're yeah. consulting or just having right. storytelling opportunities? Um, that's a good question. I think, I mean, I said earlier curiosity, but I'll, I'll not go back to that. I think I delight in seeing people almost getting a shock. You know, we, I remember telling the UK Society of Auditors that they could do a better job if they cut the number of things they measured in half. And they're all going, huh? what? Hey? You know, and, and, you know, it shocked them. And, and of course, they all went, well, what's the evidence? Says, well, I don't have any evidence, but it just makes sense to me. You know, go and try it. So they did, and they did, <laughs> you know. And I think that, I love that. And it might be, I do, and I don't want to get into that nonsense, but I'm here to create a service. You know, I do, I am here to give a service, but it, it, it's the sort of, you don't need a textbook by bloody Simon Sinek or somebody to tell you that. You know, you get, you, you get, you get the feeling, you get the, the, the there's almost a vibe talking yes. about music that you, you know it's working you know and 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 of course if you could bottle it and sell it you'd be a multi-millionaire but good managers and particularly good consultants know that they know how to bottle that lightning and just say look look do you remember how it felt that day you know another time i was working on i worked on the beijing and on the, the london olympics and it was it was an honor to be involved in both of them they were both amazing events and i remember standing in a fish factory <laughs> A fish factory in London, right? This very smart entrepreneur owned a fish factory and the government had to buy his fish factory, knock it down to build a new stadium for the Olympics. So they built him a new fish factory about half a mile away. This guy was a cute, he was cute, this guy. He said, I want a fish factory, but I want you to put a conference centre on top of it. He now runs conferences with a 360 view of the Olympic Park. And I remember saying to him, uh, where did the idea come from? He said, you know, my son said, wouldn't it be nice to be able to see that stadium, Daddy, from the office? <laughs> Bang. Totally true. You Google it. If you look it up, you'll find them. They've got a fish factory really? in Salford in London. It's it's extraordinary. So I think that sort of thing really turns me on. You know, I get, I get really excited by that. Um, I really so do. Good. Really you do. touched on something really powerful. Like you said, it's the vibe. Yeah, it's like well, there's a there's a a uh, well-known movie in Australia where, where they talk about, oh, it's the vibe. But it, yeah. but it is, right? Like if you if you want any guidance around your golden thread, just follow the vibe. If it doesn't feel vibe. good, don't do it. Like exactly find what right. does and, it's, and, it's, and it comes back to something that you said to me before we jumped on. It, it mm. creates time well spent. It does. And that to me is the, the, the ultimate measure. Uh, I mean, I, I, I came to, I mean, I got this, there's a, there's a very, very interesting technology philosopher uh, called Harris, and he talks about uh, all all technology should be time well spent for the user, 
and I thought, I'm having this, you know, I'm having this, but I'll take it and I'll talk about it in the wider sense, you know. So what I now say to, to delegates, and I say it at my keynotes, I say, you know, you, you only live 28,000 days. That shocks them. You sleep for a third of them. That shocks them. Yeah. And at the very down, when you take all the numbers down, you're left with 6,000 days between work and your personal life. 6,000 days. Right? So if yeah. they're standing in front of me uh, or sitting in front of me when I'm a keynote, and I say to them, if you're not getting out of this, leave. <laughs> Go away. Because there's no point because it's not time well spent. And they all get it just like that. Yeah. They all get it. And then I say to them, go back to the office. Now, I remember another, sorry, I can't help it. But there, there was another time I was working at one of the big, one of the big banks in, in Zurich, right? And I was coaching the board and it was all these big toffs, you know, these guys with the pinstripe suits on and the wah, 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 you know, these, these types. Yeah. And um, I walked in and, be, and I'll shorten up a wee bit, but basically I was doing some leadership development with this group. And one of the guys, he was actually the, the, the finance director at this major bank. So this is a major player. This is a guy who'd be well into to seven figures. You know, he'd be a very well-paid guy. And he was sitting playing on his, his uh, telephone for about half an hour. And I was getting more and more annoyed, right? And I just stood and I went, I, this is what my kids say, I go, I go full Glasgow and I went full Glasgow. I said, am I effing boring you? Right? <laughs> and he jumped Ian, I swear to you, he jumped back in his seat, phone went flying, his seat went flying back, and there was a glass wall behind him. He hit the glass wall, and it shattered. <laughs> right? Yeah. He got up, and oh, he was very flustered, right? And he went out the room. I got a round of applause. <laughs> Outstanding. Right? And here's the kicker. He's now a friend of mine. Brilliant. Because he said, nobody had the nerve to do that but you did now it was a risk I can't, it was a risk you know? calculating the risk I think it was a worthwhile risk and, yeah yeah uh, Stuart's his name Stuart's a great guy but he, he he needed that he he needed somebody to say you're being a bit of a as I say in London you're being a bit of a plonker stop it because he didn't realise he was he, he, he was it was like a big ego type thing was going on in his head I don't know what he was doing but anyway that that's yeah, true yeah. <laughs> so well, the, the two things that really stand out for that for me is like how often do we say yes to things that we don't really want to do and actually yes. have the courage and the bravery just to, to, to say, no, this is not right for me. And then also, how many times do we leave things unsaid that need to be said and, not again, not have the courage and the bravery just to say, well, this might come with some risk, but look at look how that's rewarded you. Now, it doesn't mean that we, that we uh, cut people down Oh, no, no, it's no, just no, making no. Sh- it's yeah. It's making sure that if there's something really important that that we feel needs to be said, rather than worrying about like this whole political correctness thing gone mad, oh, just just be able to speak your truth in a in a kind and compassionate way, and and that's going to just create such a ripple of change. Beautifully said. Can't can't say it better. Now, when we talk stories. So much of it is about relationships. And you've already mentioned your grandfather, what an impact he had. You said there was another person in your life that, that had a similar impact. And, and you said you're, yeah. you're a budding scientist, 24, and, and, yeah. um, and this professor that really uh, yes. gave you such great knowledge. So tell me about that and how that's helped you in storytelling as well. Um, 
I, I, I have to watch my emotions with this because even although it happened so long, well, it happened 20 years ago, it still has a huge impact on me. Um, when I left university, um, like most scientists, uh, trainee scientists, I ended up working at a kilt maker. <laughs> I couldn't get a job, right? So yeah. I was working in a kilt maker in Edinburgh selling Loch Ness monsters to stupid Americans. Um, <laughs> and, uh, oh, it's terrible. And I was looking for a job. You know, I was getting all the newspapers and all the magazines as you did then because it was before the internet. Uh, well, yeah. the internet was around, but it was very primitive. And um, one day, there's a paper in Edinburgh called Edinburgh Evening News. There was a little tiny ad saying, Research Assistant Required, Edinburgh University Pathology Department. And the interviews were on the Thursday the following week. So I called up, uh, sent them a CV, and I got an interview. So I was really happy about this. But, of course, it was during the day, and I was working in a kilt maker. <laughs> so guess what I was wearing? <laughs> Full Brilliant. Highland uh, gear on, right? And yeah. I walked up from the Princess Street in Edinburgh up uh, over the Royal Mile to the Edinburgh University there. It's a, it's a beautiful big part of it, a huge place. And I went into the pathology department, and it just so happened I had, I had what's called the Lindsay tartan on. And, and your listeners, it's the sort of the, 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 the purpley one. No, the maroon one. Sorry, it's the maroon one. It's the maroon and dark maroon, almost a single color. But that, that was the Lindsay tartan. And I walked into the, the interview, and I sat down. And, of course, the girls were all laughing at me at the reception because I had a kilt on. Are you wearing anything underneath it? And all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I went in and there was a guy called Kenny and there was Professor Dougal Gardner sitting there. And of course, I had no idea who he was. He didn't know I was coming, but the Gardner family wear the Lindsay Tartan. Wow. I kid you not, right? And I think I got the job because I was wearing that kilt, not because I was any good at science. <laughs> <laughs> You'd done your research. You knew what oh, to wear. It was oh, no, a, no. a fluke. <laughs> so anyway, I got the job. So I ended up working there and it was like a, a year on year research assistant towards getting a PhD in, in pathology. And uh, <laughs> I was to the first year I was learning my, my craft effectively. I was working with electron microscopes and, and some very high tech laser microscopes and stuff and cutting up dead, dead, dead bodies and all that. That's why I went from human remains to HR. And um, but in the second year, I got a, I basically I was in the laboratory and the professor's assistant came in and he said uh, the professor would like to see you. Now this guy was not the sort of guy you didn't go and see immediately. He was you know very powerful. You could see people wilting when they walked down the corridor because he was he was he was a vast intellect. So I went in to see him and he said sit down. And I was like right. And he said right. I've got. And he always had his glasses at the end of his nose like this. And he said. Um, that doesn't work on the radio, does it? <laughs> I've got my glasses at the end of my nose. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and he, he said, um, he said, right, I've got a job for you. And I said, what's that, prof? And he said, well, I can't be bothered teaching these boring medical students college and chemistry this year, so you're going to do it for me? <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, now I knew my college and chemistry. That was not the issue. I was technically capable in that area and I knew it. I could still probably talk about it to this day. But I'd never taught and I'd never stood on a stage in my life at that point, apart from a couple of things at university. So the next Thursday, I had to go to the... Now, if you've ever seen any of the old Frankenstein movies where Professor Frankenstein is making the the, the, the monster, and it's, but he's shown his colleagues, it's these big sort of, I don't know, like, like bowl-shaped lecture theatres with a little uh, dissection table. That's what yeah. it was like, <laughs> right? And I'm standing there going... Oh, well, I can't 
Dave, I was thinking, but there were half of them were, were Asian because there was an awful lot of Asian students in Edinburgh at the time, there still is, and the rest of them, they were the same age as me, right? So yeah. not only was I teaching for the first time, I was basically teaching my, 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 my peers college and chemistry as part of their doctor's uh, de, uh, second year, third, third year degree. So anyway, I went, I went through this and I used to have long hair. And I remember after the eight weeks, I came out and I had my, my lab coat, which is over there, I've still got it. Um, and my hair was all wet and it was down at my back, my hair, and it was all wet and horrible. And I was like, oh, thank God for that. Uh, went back to the laboratory two days later on the Monday. Um, in comes his Professor Gardner's assistant again. The professor would like to see you. And I was like, oh, God. You know, and I, I genuinely thought I was going to lose my job. Yeah. And although I was living in a squat at the time, I couldn't afford to lose my job. I just couldn't. I, I had a, a, a serious Guinness and music habit that I couldn't give up, you know. <laughs> so I went, in, I went into his office and he said, have a seat. Didn't say hello, have a seat. I'm thinking, oh, here we go. I'm going to get my P45, as they say in the UK. I'm going to get my Jotters, as they say in, in Glasgow. And he said, how did it go? And I was like, and I, I was sweating. I could feel the sweat running down my face. And he said, well, look, I tell you, he said, tell you what, Scott, give yourself a grade, A to F. And I said, um, well, professor, it was an F. It, it was terrible. And I just thought, honesty is the best thing, right? And he's looking at me and he's going, yes, I've heard, I've had some feedback. Yes, yes. <laughs> And I'm thinking, oh God, he's going to sack me. And then he said, then he leant forward and he said, "Can I give you a grade?" And I went, "Okay." And I thought honestly that was it. And he went, "This is the grade I'm going to give you." And the old sod paused. It was like dramatic. He did it deliberately. <laughs> I'm sure he did. And he said, "The grade I'm going to give you is not yet." And I was like, "What the hell is he talking about?" I I had no idea what he was talking about. Right? Yeah. But all I knew was he hadn't sacked me. <laughs> So I'll ask your listeners what do you think he was doing? But well, what he was doing was he was he was saying he, somebody had said to him there was bits of Scott that were quite good in that room and maybe with a bit of practice he could be better, right? Yeah. 20 years later, we are now very good friends and he's now Dougald, not Professor Gardner. Yeah. And he's in his 90s. And I had just set up my own business and one of the first things that happened when I did set my business up, I got a call, would you like to come and speak uh, at TED? TEDx in, in uh, Warwick, the biggest one in Europe, 3,000 people. And I went, oh my God, yes, I would, right? Yeah. Called Dougald and said, Dougald, I've been asked to do one of these TEDx talks. Would you like to come and see me? And he said, look, I'm, I'm too old. I can't make it. I'm 93. Send me the tape, though, and maybe come up and see me, and I'll, I'll watch it. So I went and did my TEDx. It was fine. It was why it was called Why Facts Don't Change People. And it was seven years ago today. Wow. I did that. I sent the tape to him. And the next weekend, I'm going to... Sorry, I'm losing my, my marbles here. The next weekend, I go up to Edinburgh to a place called the, 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 the Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh, which is a, a very prestigious building in Edinburgh. They have them all the, all the major cities in Europe uh, where they keep all the dead bodies for the medics and the, the, the dentistry students. So there's a swimming pool full of dead bodies. But anyway, we're in there, uh, in this cafeteria, and his son David was there, and he said, oh, the prof's over there, and he, he walked me over to where Dougal was sitting, and I sat down... How you doing? I gave him a big hug and how you doing, Dougal, and all the rest of it. And, he, and, he, and I said, did, did you see my talk? And he let in and he said, give yourself a grade. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not, right? And I was like, oh, bugger off. you know. And he, and he said, I'll give you a grade then. He said, I'll give you an A. And I was like one of my kids. I'm going, yes, yes. But you know what he did? He paused again. And he said this, he went, 
but changed my life, mate. Changed my life. Absolutely phenomenal. And I've got dozens of stories about him like that, but that is a completely true story. And it was, and I've got the photographs that I look at quite often. Um, He's passed now, he's died now, but uh, a remarkable man. I'm so grateful that I met him. So grateful. Yeah. And, and if we talk about stories, it's so important to pause and think about those important people in your life. And I'm having about three or four of them come flooding back into my head, uh, yes. mainly sports coaches, interestingly, uh, yes. who just left such a positive mark. Um, and, and even if you can't speak to them, just getting, getting it down on paper or recording a memo about it. So much power. Um, and I hope that I can do that even just for one or two people in the rest of my life, you know, that, 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 that's enough, you know, yeah. I, I don't need to affect a billion people like some of these, you know, these idiots you get writing terrible books. Um, one or two people that if somebody writes to you in five years time and says, I remember that daft Scottish guy and he made me think about this. Well, you need to let me know. Cause that, that would just make my year. Absolutely. And I think when you your target is just to change one life, then yeah. you'll change so many more because you're not <laughs> yeah. worrying about the ego and you're not worrying exactly. about all these different uncontrollables. You're, you're just yeah. creating an impact for, for yes. well, when we create for one, we create for all, right? So there's, there's so much power in that. Mm. Scott, thank you so much for this chat. I loved it. I really enjoy storytelling. And, uh, thank you. We seem to connect really well, which is always a good thing. Where can people find you and find out more about you? And and I'm particularly like, you've got the artifact chats, yeah. Yeah, uh, so every every Tuesday at uh, twelve thirty UK time, uh, I have artifact live, which is basically a chat like this. It's it's not structured. It's the same as you. And we have a chat. Um, um, I've done sixty odd shows now, and um, it's amazing. And I've got some wonderful. I've had some. I mean, I've had everyone from. I've had one of the top. Martian engineers who's coaching Elon Musk. I've had a guy who was a, a a forklift truck driver who's written 10 books about the carpenters. You know, it, it's been amazing. Um, it's it's about the guests. It's not about me. They, they do the talking, really. Yeah. But it, it is um, great fun. But the bit easiest way to find me is just the hashtag Scott Speaks. You see it there in my little uh, logo, Scott Speaks. Hashtag Scott Speaks. That's me all over the place. Every platform yeah. I'm there. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, that's where I connected with you. I can't remember yeah. which one of those. It was a, I think it was a woman. She was probably talking about something a little bit woo-woo, but uh, yeah. it was something that caught, caught yeah. my ear and caught my attention. I, I, I allow the woo-woos now. I used to tell them to get lost, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite as hard on them now. I just, I, I won't enter into any discussions about the evidence behind what they're talking about, but I'll listen to them and I'll enjoy it, you know, because some, if you look at the sides, some of the woo-woo guys, you know, like, uh, Gandhi and Mandela and people, they were full of woo-woo. Pretty good yeah. team. <laughs> so, you know. And, um, and their return <laughs> in humanity was massive. That's the one. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. Thanks Welcome. again, Scott. Appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. 
You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.